0: Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, beginning with that original ending, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What had changed on that Easter morning? What had changed from the perspective of, we'll call them the women of witness who went to the tomb. What had changed for them so far? We could argue that at daybreak, as far as they knew, nothing had changed. They are going to the tomb and they're expecting. Not to find a risen savior, not to find an angel. They expect that nothing has changed between Saturday and Sunday. But the only thing that they carry with them is the grief that they have, that they saw their teacher, their rabbi, the one who they loved, the one who performed miracles, the one who fed the 5,000, the one who said to the lame, walk, pick pick up your mat and walk. They saw him crucified. They saw his body pierced with a spear. And they are grieving. They are grieving. And their grief is very normal in the sense that that grief will cloud and even tunnel vision our judgment. If ever there is a detail in Scripture that testifies to the fact that they are grieving, it's the fact that they haven't even yet thought ahead to the stone that's in front of the tomb until they're on their way there. Because their grief is so present. Their hope is not in a risen Savior just yet. Their hope is to find some consolation in anointing Jesus' body, to, to offer some funeral rituals, to give Jesus some dignity after his shame and humiliation. Their hope is not to find a risen Savior. Their hope is just to comfort their grief, even just a little bit. So far as they know. Nothing has changed. And there are many on that morning who would make the case that nothing had yet changed. There is still hunger, sickness, poverty, and war in the world. Rome was still in plenty of power, flexing its pagan muscle across the known world. There were still plenty of things that were wrong with the world and many could make the case that nothing had changed. But there's also some things that had not changed that were very good. No letter of the law from Genesis to Malachi had changed. Nothing that the law and prophets had testified about the Messiah had changed. Nothing that Jesus had said had changed. None of his words were erased away when he died. None of his words of healing and assurance. None of his words of teaching and none even of the words that he said that seemed a little bit outlandish, a little bit crazy, a little bit hard to follow, hard to imagine. None of that had changed. Everything that Jesus said and did still was. The feeding of the 5,000 did not reverse itself. The people that Jesus had healed when he was alive did not revert to illness. None of that had changed. All of the works of God were still fully present. None of that had changed. It was still the same. None of it had changed. Except maybe a few of the things that Jesus said might be a little bit harder to hold on to now that he had died. Maybe some of the outlandish things that he said, things about being God's son, may not be our first thing to follow. Nothing, none of that had changed. So you can make the case that nothing had changed. And yet, everything had changed. For them and for us and for all who are far off, everything had changed, though we did not know it yet. The first sign that things were different, that everything had changed, was that the stone had been rolled away. The stone that would be immeasurably hard to push away just a few people gathered for a graveside service. The stone had already been rolled away. That was the first sign that something was different. Something had changed. And the young man in white who would have been unidentifiable to the women of witness, but we can pretty easily understand that he was a messenger from God, an angel who first spoke the words of good news. Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Everything has changed. Everything has changed with that proclamation, making it certain. And yet, it doesn't mean that the world suddenly became a utopia It doesn't mean that hunger and disease and war and strife and hatred evaporated away. And yet, everything had changed, though we did not yet fully realize it. Everything had changed. Those words of witness to the women at the tomb were proof positive that Christ was risen from the dead. And none of us would have been able to fathom it in the moment if we were in their place, that this makes a world of difference because all the things that Jesus said were true. All of even the crazy sounding stuff about the Son of Man will will suffer and die and rise again on the third day. Something that was repeated three times in the Gospel of Mark. These things were hard to believe, hard to understand. And even the disciples reacted against them with confusion or, or even rejection of this idea that Jesus would die. And now, with the tunnel-visioned effect of grief, no one's bringing to mind that this is exactly what Jesus said would happen and that everything would change in this moment. Heavenly validity was now confirmed that when Jesus told people, your sins are forgiven, he did so. With the authority of God. The Lord who could calm the storms with a word was also Lord over life and death. Nothing had changed in what Jesus had said, but everything had now changed in how we could understand who it was that said these things and with what authority they were spoken. Jesus is nothing less than. An amazing teacher. A master of rhetoric and words. A master of drawing from the Old Testament and telling people, hey, I don't think you quite have the clearest picture of God yet, even with the scriptures. Jesus was a masterful teacher. He used symbols that people understood, and in some ways, he advocated for terrible agricultural practices, like sowing seed in the middle of the road. Bad idea, but point made. Jesus was nothing less than an amazing teacher. But we know and we believe by faith that he was so much more than that. And it's because of the resurrection that we know and have faith and believe that Jesus was more than just a teacher. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, also wrote several other books. And in Mere Christianity... He wrote it this way. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic... Friends, Jesus was nothing less than a teacher, though we know he was more, and he was nothing less than God himself. The resurrection is the proof that we have that changes everything. Certainly, we know that death can be stalled, and on occasions throughout the scriptures, resurrection would happen in a very particular way here and there. But now, But now the resurrection is made available to all. The hope that those who were grieving had is now ubiquitous, open to all people. It's incredible that the one who is crucified, hands and feet with a spear thrust into his side, he is not here because he has risen again. He's out and about taking a walk in the creation of the garden. Everything has changed. God has died for us and now lives for us. Everything has changed. And if all we had was Mark 1 through 8, it would be enough to believe that Jesus had risen again. It would be enough to know that the tomb was empty. Although it might leave some questions. What if somebody else Jesus' body away. What if that man in the tomb was just a hired actor that somebody got off of Craigslist? What if it was all a big scheme and plot? With Mark 1 through 8 by itself, it would be enough to know that Jesus was no longer dead. But would it answer all of our questions? Would it leave behind all shadow of doubt? We, the reader, may even ask, how would we hear about this Because verse 8 tells us that the women, trembling and bewildered, fled from the tomb and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. We may ask as the reader, how am I reading this if they said nothing to anyone? It's not like there was a magical scroll following them around with a magical quill writing down the words and narration, though we might have pictures of that in certain popular fiction novels. Clearly they told people eventually. But just not right away. And why not? Why would you not share what you observed, what you believed to be true? Why didn't they? Because they were afraid, with every right to be. And who exactly are they going to tell in this moment? Are they going to run and find the disciples? The disciples have not exactly proved themselves to be exemplars of courage in this moment. They are a combination of scattered, hiding, denying Jesus, or dead. Just Judas at this point. The disciples are scattered. Who would the women go and tell? And who would believe them anyway? Did they even believe it themselves? After seeing Jesus dead and crucified, after seeing him in a tomb, would you believe it? Could you? The grave was empty, and this, we know, is a symbol of our faith. But was it enough? It would be enough with faith and with the conviction of the Holy Spirit that Mark Mark 16, 1 through 8 would be fully sufficient. But also, isn't it bothersome that the story would end with fear, that fear would be the last word of the gospel? And that actually the last action in this ending is one of disobedience. They were told to go and tell Peter and the disciples, but they did not. The story continues. It doesn't end with fear or disobedience. Rather, the rest of it continues in 9 through 20. And if you're curious, for curiosity's sake, why is there one ending that we have this little footnote about and then the rest later? from the best of scholarship and understanding of how the scriptures in the form that we have them came to us, Mark's gospel was the earliest one that got circulated. And it had this ending. So the oldest and finest of manuscripts we have end at verse 8. But there were other details. There were other witnesses that were shared along the way. And eventually, if you had a copy of just Mark's gospel. And you caught wind of some of the other things that happened. Would you not want to also share with people that great wording of the great commission from Matthew 28? Go therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Would you not also want to share that ending? Would you not also want the road to Emmaus in the Gospel of Luke? This appearance when Jesus walked alongside of two disciples and they didn't even recognize him until he broke bread with them. And in that moment mirroring communion, they realized this is Jesus. The risen Lord was walking alongside of us. Were our hearts not burning as he opened the scriptures up to us? If you heard all of those pieces from faithful witnesses, you also would want to add them in. So the form that we have of the gospel of Mark includes that which was circulated from the others of Matthew and Luke's accounts, all sharing together this full story of gospel as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John work together to bring us the hope of Jesus and his resurrection And that the story goes on. That death is not the end and the empty tomb is not the end by itself. So let's pick up at verse 9 and read the rest of the story. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest. But they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It seems the young man in white who proclaimed the good news wasn't quite enough. The empty tomb wasn't enough because they needed to hear it from Jesus They needed to see him and to hear it from his own lips. And then instead of saying nothing to anyone because they were afraid, Mary goes back and tells the disciples, though they did not believe it. But Jesus enabled her to be obedient to what she was told to do, go and tell. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Mark 12 and 13, hinted at in these verses, told more fully in the Gospel of Luke. They also now know and have seen Jesus. And yet it's funny, no one is believing it except for the first-hand witnesses. And we should note the significance here. Christ's presence is what allows them to believe they had to see it. And Christ rebukes them for like, hey, you all have a story to tell. And if you don't even believe each other, we got some work to do before other people in the world that you're going to witness to are going to believe you. You haven't even believed each other yet. But here it is. How do we, how do we then stand a chance to witness to the risen Lord? The disciples and the women of witness didn't even believe each other. Friends, after Christ rose, he spent 40 days on earth and then ascended. And in his ascension, then they waited in Jerusalem and they sent, and the Holy Spirit was sent into their hearts. We have the living witness of Christ in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. That up until that point, people only believed if they saw Jesus for himself. It took the Holy Spirit being poured out to bring that conviction to all. That they too might believe that the cross was empty, the grave is empty. Because Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. The Holy Spirit would be needed And would be poured out in all of God's faithfulness. We are here. We are here today. As part of this church in one way or another. Participating in some way or another. Because of the resurrection. If Jesus had not risen again. We wouldn't be here. We might know of some other ancient teacher named jesus yeshua but none of us would be here none of us were there on the original resurrection day none of us heard from mary magdalene herself none of us walked to emmaus we've got some older folks here but none of us are that old We are here worshiping God today because Christ's very presence enabled them to tell one another and to believe. And the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts is the witness of Christ's very living presence today that we also may know and tell and believe. We are worshiping here today giving thanks to God for the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the promise of eternal life and witnessing to the kingdom because Jesus died and rose again. And that story was known and believed and told. And the disciples told some people and they believed it. And those people told some other folks who believed it. And then those people told some other folks who they believed it. And generation after generation passed down the story that those who believed told some others who also believed, who knew the Holy Spirit in their hearts that Christ is living and that his presence is with us and that what Jesus, who was God's son, said was true that I will never leave you or forsake you, and I will be with you always to the very end of the world. This is the hope that we have in our hearts that only God can put there. We are here because some people told the story and others believed it. And there were signs that accompanied it. There were snakes handling and other stuff like that. I'm glad that that's not like a trial we have to do to like prove our validity as Christians, but rather if we did think that that was what was necessary, we'd be missing the point. The signs that accompanied Jesus's resurrection being proclaimed, the signs that accompanied it were all to confirm the word. That Jesus said these words and that they were true. The signs were to accompany the words that were spoken to confirm that everything that Jesus said about the Son of Man dying for the sins of the world and on three days rising again, tear down this temple and rebuild it, that all of it was true and confirmed in the resurrection. This is the good news that we share. This is evangelism. This is sharing the gospel. And perhaps too often we conflate evangelism with Converting. Related, but not the same. When we think of sharing our faith, it's like we have to think about everyone's questions, the doubts they might have. Do we know all the answers to the questions that will come up? Are, are we sure of all of this and how to explain it well? That's if we're focused just on can we convert this person? Evangelism, what the women of witness and the disciples were told to do, is just sharing the good news. Evangelism is sharing the story. Jesus died for you and Jesus rose again. That is our story. Evangelism, literally gospelizing, good newsing is the wording, is just sharing that good news. Share the good news. Share that story. I think of it in two different ways. If we think about bringing someone to Jesus to understand the same hope, do you think about offering someone who is thirsty a cup of cold water? Or do you think about like holding them down and injecting an IV? There's a few people here who I know have experience with that. If we think about sharing the good news of Jesus, it is not a picture of having to hold someone down and diagnose them and jam an IV in and hope that we have the skill to make it happen. That is not the picture of evangelism and sharing the good news we're given. It's not restrained or coerced. It is a joyful sharing. Like, I have some water, you are thirsty, and I want to share it with you. And maybe you're not thirsty right now. Anyone who's ever had a toddler knows that there are times where I'm not thirsty may be the response. And there are fully grown adults who are spiritual toddlers who will say they are not thirsty. Evangelism, sharing the good news is that we have water of life and hope. And the world is thirsty. And it is so simple as saying, I have some water and I'd like to share it with you. This is the good news, that Jesus died and rose again and that we are a people who are thirsty for hope throughout all of history. And this is the only hope that will slake our thirst evangelism is sharing that we know a thing or two about Jesus and that ultimately it is through Jesus' life and through the witness of the Gospels that we know who God is. We don't have to pick apart all of the other things. We don't have to get too caught up in all of the minutia or all of the technicalities. What we need to do is to share the cup of cold water that Jesus died and rose again, and that what the Gospels give us is the clearest understanding of who God is. We know who God is because of Jesus. Even those who had studied the Old Testament all of their lives, Jesus often pointed out, you don't quite have the right picture of God. It is only through Christ that we have a true and full picture. It gives us the clearest picture of who God is. And it was the Word. The Word made flesh. The ability to get to know who God really was. And what do we learn from Jesus? We learn from his life and his birth, his incarnation, that we do not have a God who is far off or distant. We do not have a God who turns away at arm's length. We have a God who was born and dwelt among us, who walked among us, who ate the food that we eat, who walked the roads that we walked. We do not have a God who tells us to harbor grudges or hold on to bitterness, but we have a God who died upon the the cross and wanted to forgive his own executioners and the crowd who mocked him. We have a God who is not unconcerned with the things of this world, who is not unconcerned with our needs, but a Jesus who showed us that God cares about our daily needs, about daily bread, about healing people, about giving them life to the fullest. This is a picture of who God is. A God who went to wedding receptions, a God who walked along the roads, a God who knew people and had time for them. Ultimately, the picture of Jesus that we get in the Gospels is one who loves us both fiercely and tenderly. We know that Jesus doesn't dart out when things get difficult. He didn't beam himself out of his mock trial, his betrayal, and his execution. Jesus does not leave then. How much more then do we know that Jesus will not leave us in our hour of need? So friends, what has changed? You could focus on the ways and make a case that nothing has changed. Or we can accept that everything has changed through Christ's resurrection. And where our hurt that we see in this world, where the pain that still exists is still there, Well, this is where we find our mission to bring Christ's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, fully here. To join the Redeemer in the redemptive work to share the clearest picture of who God is. And this we know through Jesus Christ. This is the cup of cold water that we offer to other weary travelers on the road. This is our understanding that is given to us, that the hard times that we face can be given meaning, even through Christ's great love for us. How do we know who God is? When we accept, as C.S. Lewis urges us to, that Jesus really is the Son of God, that we understand that God knows our every need, can relate to our every weakness in pain and suffering, That he knows our sin and yet was so quick to say your sins are forgiven. We understand God best when we know Jesus. This is the clear picture that makes it come together and the validity of it is in the resurrection. We know that Christ's love for us is so strong and great and powerful and fierce and gentle that Jesus would die for you his death so that we might live amen and amen friends jesus died for us so that we might live and though he knew how often it was easy to forget easy to lose sight easy to get confused that even some of his own did not believe right away Jesus knows that we would need reminders along the way. And so he gave us the bread and the cup as holy communion, reminders of who he was to feed us and nourish us along the way and to remind us that he will nourish us along the way. That the death that he died, he died for us so that we might live in his life. So we're going to celebrate communion this day. With our risen Lord. Hear these words Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Supper that we are about to celebrate is a feast of remembrance, communion, and hope. We come in remembrance that our Lord Jesus Christ was sent of the Father into the world to assume our flesh and blood and to fulfill for us all obedience to the divine law even to the bitter and shameful death of the cross. By his death, resurrection, and ascension, he established a new and eternal covenant of grace and reconciliation that we might be accepted of God and never, ever be forsaken by him. We come to have communion with that same Christ who has promised to be with us always even to the very end of the world, even through death itself. He will commune with us and be with us. In the breaking of the bread, he makes himself known to us as the true heavenly bread that strengthens us for life eternal. And in the cup of blessing, he comes to us as the true vine in whom we must abide if we are to bear fruit. We come in hope, believing that this bread and this cup are a pledge and foretaste, a promise and a preview, of the feast of love that we shall partake when his kingdom has fully come, and when with unveiled face we shall behold him and be made like him into all of his glory. Can you imagine? We come in remembrance, communion, and hope. Since by his death and resurrection and by his ascension, Christ has obtained for us this life-giving Holy Spirit that convicts our hearts and brings the presence of the living Christ with us, So it is that the Holy Spirit unites us all in one body under Christ, our King, the head of the church. So we are to receive this supper now in true love, in sincere gratitude, mindful of the communion of saints who heard the good news, who heard the story and believed.
1: Friends, as we approach the table this morning, uh, we're going to use the cup with the bread and juice to guide us as we remember the sacrifice made for us by Jesus on the cross. I'm also going to invite you as well to join us in the words of our communion liturgy. I'll read the normal font, um, and you'll read the bolded font. You know what to do. We've done this before. Friends, as we come to the table this Easter Sunday, may the Lord be with you. And also, and also with, with you. you. Lift up your hearts.
0: We, we lift, lift them, them up, up to, to the Lord.
1: Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is, it is right, right to, to give, give our thanks, our thanks and, praise. and praise. Let us pray. Holy and right it is, and our joyful duty to give thanks to you at all times and in all places. O Lord our Creator, Almighty and everlasting God, you created heaven with all its hosts and the earth with all its plenty. You have given us life and being and preserve us by your providence. You have shown us the fullness of your love in sending into the world your Son, Jesus Christ, the eternal word made flesh for us and for our salvation. For the precious gift of this mighty Savior who has reconciled us to you, we praise and bless you, O God, With your whole church on earth and with all the company of heaven, we worship and adore your glorious name, saying together, Holy, holy, holy 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 Lord, God of power power and might, Might. heaven Heaven and and earth earth are are full of your your glory. Hosanna in in the the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.
0: Hosanna in in the
1: highest. Most righteous God, we remember in this supper the perfect sacrifice offered once on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ for the sin of the whole world. In the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again, we offer ourselves to you as holy and living sacrifices, as together we proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ Christ has died. died. Christ Christ is is risen. risen. Christ Christ will come come again. again. Send your Holy Spirit upon us, we pray, that the bread which we break and the cup which we bless may be to us the communion of the body and blood of Christ. Grant that being joined together in him, we may attain to the unity of the faith and grow up in all things into Christ our Lord. And as this grain has been gathered from many fields into one loaf, and these grapes from many hills into one cup, Grant, O Lord, that your whole church may soon be gathered from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.
0: As we take our communion cups with the bread first on the top, we remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was gathered with his disciples just a few days before his resurrection. And as he was gathered with them, he told to them, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said to them, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat of it, remember me. The bread which we break is our communion with the body of Christ. Thanks be to God.
1: In the same way, as he was with his friends, Jesus took the cup. He poured it out for them, and he blessed it. He said, friends, take and drink. This is the new cup of my blood. As often as you are together, drink of it. And remember me. The cup of blessing which we bless is our communion with the body and blood of Christ.
0: Amen. These are the gifts of God for the people of God to strengthen and nourish and remind us. Amen.